Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock, professor of history at the University of Virginia. And I'm Siva Vadianathan, media studies professor and director of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. And this is Democracy in Danger, a show that explores the problems and crises facing democratic governance in the United States and around the world. So last time, we talked to Nicole Hemmer of Columbia University about the conservative media landscape, the rise of the alt-right, and how both have shaped public discourse in America. Well, today we're going global in search of insights about fascism, populism, and illiberal democracy in Latin America. Now, Will, the scourge of the coronavirus is really bringing all of this into high relief. Infections across Latin America are surging. But leaders in some hard-hit places like Brazil, Mexico, and Nicaragua are downplaying the crisis. They're even denying basic science. So look at the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, You know, he claimed for the longest time that he was immune to COVID-19 because he's an athletic guy. And then he got sick and he tested positive. And when he announced that he tested positive, he, he pulled his mask off right in front of reporters to show them how well he was doing. Yeah, it's pretty astonishing. Bolsonaro has even boasted, like President Trump, about taking hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malarial drug that studies show is ineffective against the coronavirus, and it, it may even be harmful. Yeah. Meanwhile, the virus is exploding all across Brazil. Brazil has become one of the major hotspots in the world, right along with Russia and India and the United States. And these countries seem to have a lot in common. Well, Siva, our guest today has suggested that leaders like Bolsonaro are trying to turn the pandemic to their advantage by ignoring facts, blaming the media, blaming the experts for the crisis, and promising miracle cures. Well, all of this allows them to flex their authoritarian muscle. So we have Federico Finkelstein with us today. He's a historian at the New School in New York City. He's written extensively on autocratic trends around the world, including his first book, From Fascism to Populism in History, and most recently, a Brief History of Fascist Lies. Federico, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be uh, here. Federico, you grew up in Argentina, a country that has had a complicated and difficult relationship with democracy uh, over time. Can you tell us a bit about Argentina's political history and how has that shaped your work and your life? Well, uh, I was born a little time before uh, the, the coup d'etat, that created in a country that had many dictatorships, probably the worst and most lethal dictatorship in the history of our country. Uh, this was a dictatorship that uh, decided uh, that uh, people that disagree uh, you know, with, with its leaders, with the junta, were uh, terrorists, all of them, and decided to go against, against its citizens and eventually killing uh, thousands of them. I mean, the numbers are between 15,000 and 30,000, and citizens were kidnapped, tortured, and eventually disappeared. So that is also why it's so hard to know the, the, the exact numbers. I lived the first decade of my life under such a dictatorship, and I think it affected me uh, deeply in many ways. And one of them is that once democracy returned, I was a young person first in a high school where uh, many of the students had been, you know, disappeared, that is to say, killed. And eventually uh, at the university, when, when I entered the university, it was just 10 years after the demise of that dictatorship. And, and, and I decided to study history uh, to a big extent because I wanted to understand why uh, fascist ideologies lead to such political violence. And of course, all these uh, things are important for, in my view at least, for thinking the present. 
So this dictatorship uh, uh, in Argentina, would you describe it as fascist? And if so, what qualifies a dictatorship to be fascist? Well, I wrote a book about the dictatorship, which is called The Ideological Origins of the Dirty World. And in that book, my, my argument is that uh, this is not per se a fascist uh, dictatorship, but it's a dictatorship which is inspired in fascist ideology as it emerged uh, and developed uh, first in the 1920s and 1930s. Now, more specifically in my work, I analyze why this dictatorship turn against its citizens, calling them terrorists. Basically, when these victims, citizens, were put in concentration camps and they were tortured, the kind of conspiracy-ridden uh, uh, questions that they were asked uh, were fascist questions. And they were asked to confirm things that, that actually confirm uh, the, the, the lies and the propaganda of the dictatorship. So, and generally, that's how torture works. There is an idea that needs to be confirmed and people are subjected to extreme violence in order to confirm a truth which, which is basically ideology and propaganda. It's not the actual truth. Uh, because when these dictators and these fascists lie, either they believe their lies are truth or they believe their lies are at the service of the truth or, and this is the worst part of it, they believe that if reality doesn't conform to this ideological quote-unquote truth, then it is this reality that needs to be changed in order to confirm the conspiracy, to confirm basically the lie. And that's pretty scary. Federico, I want to come back to the, um, the, the role of uh, falsehoods and lies in fascist uh, governance. But before we get there, let me come to a second term that you use a lot in your writing alongside fascism, which is populism. And you have a view of populism uh, in the post-1945 world as being maybe the more apt political term to describe what's happening uh, around the world. Can you talk a little bit about populism and what it means? Yes, of course. Populism uh, existed clearly before the 20th century, and it, it emerged in places like Russia, the US, Europe, and also was present in Latin America. But my argument is that uh, ideologies and movements are to some extent of limited importance until they become regimes, until they reach power. It was one thing before Hitler and Mussolini came to power and it became a huge global thing once it achieved power. And this is the same with populism. And populism came to power for the first time in its history after 1945 in Latin America. These uh, former dictators decided that they needed to re-engage with democracy, to create fascism in a democratic key. And the result of that is authoritarian democracy, which is populism. Now, they left behind three key elements. They left behind, of course, dictatorship. They, uh, they left behind the glorification and the practice of political violence. And they left behind uh, racism and xenophobia as being at the center of uh, their politics. Now, when they left those things behind, they created uh, modern uh, populist regimes. And this is important because it, it shows already that we are not talking about fascism when we talk about populism. Federico, talk a little bit more about the place of racism and xenophobia in populism. It seems to me, as we look out at the contemporary political landscape, that racism, whether it's coded in certain keywords or, or whether it's overt, has uh, has come back to uh, to to be at really at the center of of populist politics. Do you agree or disagree with that? 
I fully agree. And yet the circle is not complete. It's not that we are, at least at this point, returning to uh, fascism per se. But we are seeing a turning point in the history of populism in the sense that populism emerged as a way to reach power by leaving behind these key elements, uh, racism, violence, uh, and dictatorship, which were at the center of, of fascism. I mean, let me say this. From Juan Perón in Argentina to Getulio Vargas in Brazil, to uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, these elements were not really important. Perón himself, the first populist uh, elected to government, he said that he did not want to have fascists very close to him because he, he felt that these people would scare voters. And we are seeing at the center of this turning point American history and Donald Trump because we saw in his previous presidential campaign that he launched his campaign with racism and xenophobia at the center. As you might recall, he said that uh, Mexicans were uh, rapists. Uh, and this kind of xenophobia and this kind of racism would have been anathema to previous populists. And yet he won. Now, if we go back to fascism, fascism destroys democracy from within meaning it uses democracy to destroy democracy. It reaches power by electoral means and by legal means and eventually destroys all legality and, of course, destroys all electoral means to, to deal with politics in a democratic key. Now, historically, populists did the opposite. People like Perón and Vargas, and there are similar examples in, in Bolivia and Venezuela, they were dictators or they were allied with dictators and and they destroy dictatorship from within in order to create a democracy. I mean, of course, the result of that was this authoritarian form of democracy, which involved, you know, issues of social justice even and anti-racism at the same time that it involved authoritarian leadership. That's why populism is a kind of hybrid uh, which combines authoritarianism and democracy. I want to pick up on something that you just said that I think is really helpful. Uh, when you talk about the way in which uh, fascism has used democracy to destroy democracy, at least in a couple of important cases in the past, we think of the Third Reich, for example, in Germany. But in your most recent book, you talk about the way that uh, demagogues manipulate reality. And this is a crucial element of their using the democratic sphere to their own advantage by flooding it with untruths, with falsehoods, with conspiracy theories. And I wonder if you could just remind us that what we're seeing today in the United States with uh, all kinds of figures um, coming up with their own interpretation of reality, that this isn't exactly new, right? This is something that demagogic leaders have tried again and again throughout the 20th century. Uh, yes, absolutely. What is new is that this is new in the history of populism. I mean, because this is, as, I, as we were talking before, this was typical during the dictatorship that I grew up in in Argentina. I mean, uh, in, in Argentina in 1982, these dictators against, you know, reality decided to go to war against the United Kingdom. And I remember as a young kid listening to the TV and they were insisting every single day. I mean, this was the message, right? We are winning and we were losing big. And, uh, uh, or, or as the president would say, bigly. Uh, but in any case, I mean, the, the point is that uh, these were lies which were typical of totalitarian dictatorships such as the fascist ones or the Argentine Dirty War one or Pinochet, but not on democracies. We are returning to the fascist ways of lying, which were not necessarily typical of populism per se. I mean, a Perón or, um, or a Vargas, 
in Brazil, they will not lie like this. And yet we are seeing that these people are elected leaders, they were elected as populists. And what are we seeing now? Well, that's the open question. Let me ask you to give us a concrete example and, and to take uh, the case of Brazil. Do you put Jair Bolsonaro and his government uh, on this continuum? Where, where, How are they manipulating facts? How are they using racism? How are they using xenophobia? Uh, is violence and dictatorship in the in the picture? Try to map what's happening in Brazil today onto this interpretation. Well, what is happening to democracy in Brazil is a disaster. Uh, the New York Times published an article about how Bolsonaro is playing with the idea of a coup d'etat, a self-coup d'etat, or we say in Spanish, autogolpe. I mean, a populist destroying as the fascists did, in fact, democracy from within. And in Brazil, we have been seeing this for a long, long time, that, that this idea that democracy can be destroyed and it can be returned to the dictatorship that basically Bolsonaro has been glorifying for the last decades. And Bolsonaro was a character that has participated as a low-rank officer in a dictatorship. Uh, he has praised dictatorship, Latin American dictatorships. I mean, Pinochet is an idol of, of him. On top of that, and as you said before, we are seeing uh, Brazil reaching the heights of the pandemic, also augmented, amplified by the responsibility of denying the facts and denying the science. So it goes back to this fascist way of lying in which the lie becomes the truth. And Bolsonaro has been even more radical than Trump in this regard. He has, in the same way that after the Holocaust, you had Holocaust denial, these leaders engage in science denial, and the result of that is deadly. Uh, it involves people dying because the leaders believe, as you know, as Bolsonaro said, that this is just a little fever, that's a quote, uh, or that uh, this should be treated with malaria drugs that are totally unproved. So this combination of miracle cures, calls for coup d'etat, call for more authoritarianism or even a dictatorship uh, in the context of the pandemic uh, explains the disaster that Brazil is today. Federico, this notion that uh, a fascist lie is a, a lie that becomes the truth, that raises an interesting question given how we are trying to build up some resistance to that phenomenon, both in the United States and in Brazil. Now, it seems to me that uh, Bolsonaro has not been very successful in his campaign to get people in Brazil to accept his lies as truth. His, his support is down near 30%. He seems to be failing in his economic agenda. He certainly has not succeeded in convincing people in Brazil that the coronavirus is nothing to worry about, that it's just a flu. Uh, it seems like the goal isn't necessarily to convince people that a particular set of lies are true, but merely to flood the public sphere with enough nonsense, lies, distortions, distractions, that the opposition finds it impossible to mount a coherent argument. At least that's what I see in the United States in how we react to Donald Trump. Is that similarly happening in other media ecospheres around Latin America? Well, I absolutely agree with you that this is what we are seeing in the US and this is what we are seeing in Brazil. Now, the other country that might look like this is Venezuela, which is interesting because both Trump and Bolsonaro would like to differentiate themselves from that. But Venezuela at this point, like Nicaragua, it operates like a dictatorship. 
Now, the rest of Latin America, what we are seeing is a totally different uh, politics of the disease. One resembling more, uh, I would say, Western Europe rather than the US or Brazil. Uh, these are the cases of Chile, Argentina, Uruguay. So, I mean, in a way, I would say that Brazil is being Americanized because Bolsonaro is trying to imitate Trump all the time. The difference is that he can get away with things that Trump so far has not been able to, to do. It's important, again, that there are some pillars of democracy here, uh, which are an independent press, our right to talk and, and vote and, and protest. Now, Brazil at this point, there is a, a 30% approval for Bolsonaro. But as scholars of Latin American dictatorship uh, well know, you don't need more than that, because if you have, the, let's say, the civil service and the armed forces, you can basically topple democratic governments uh, with a lot of repression, but not necessarily with a lot of approval. So when Argentina had like all these coup d'etats, it's not that everybody was jumping in, but also, of course, what you had is a lot of apathy. So my point is in Brazil, at this point, the concern is not whether the population is against. The majority of Brazilians do not like Bolsonaro at this point. And my colleagues and friends are telling me that you could hear this, you know, almost every day in Brazil's main cities. Bolsonaro could get away with this by having, you know, some collaboration from the civil service and certainly from the armed forces. So that's why it's the threat of a coup d'etat, because he can get away with things that so far in the U.S., I mean, there is more institutional autonomy, I think. And, and I mean, this idea that you see all these, for example, generals uh, talking against the president, you don't see in Brazil. Federico, are you hopeful about the future of democracy in Latin America and the United States, or are you pessimistic? Well, uh, I'm hopeful because we know, I mean, uh, uh, this is important. We know what happened before. We know what happened when democracy was not uh, defended properly. And, and I think we, we, I mean, even the fact that we are having this conversation shows that, you know, that this is a time to talk about these things in order to make it possible for dictatorship or fascism to be amplifying the world. And I think in that sense that, you know, I'm positive, uh, but still, uh, I, my opinion is that we need to be extremely active at this point, that this is not, this is not uh, late. And when it is late, we cannot even have this conversation anymore. I mean, in a dictatorship, we will not be able to have such conversation. Uh, and when I was younger, I mean, these conversations were forbidden and even extremely dangerous. Federico Finkelstein, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy in Danger. Thank you. Siva, that was really powerful. And to be reminded by Federico about growing up in Argentina, he personally experienced life under a dictatorship. He's seen it up close. And so when he looks at what's going on in Brazil today, he's deeply worried, I think rightly so, as Brazil falls prey to populism. And as he sees it, even it seems to be slipping backward towards some fascist forms of rule. Yeah, and it's really uh, important for us as Americans to recognize that uh, the, the the sort of varieties of illiberalism, the varieties of fascism that are sprouting around the world um, are, are are often locally grounded and appeal to local issues. but there are there are themes and practices that are that are common among them, right? So uh, it's also important to remember that here in the United States, we're largely unfamiliar 
with thinking about and talking about authoritarianism and fascism as domestic phenomena. Uh, and so it's hard for us to assess whether what we're going through right now in the United States even comes close to what Argentina has experienced in real life in recent history or what Brazil has experienced in real life in recent history. So if you grew up in Brazil, you grew up in Argentina, you, you actually have some life experiences, some family experiences, some stories, uh, some sense of recent history that, that you can compare and contrast to, you know, maybe we're not as on guard as some other places where people have very recent memories of fascism creeping in or rolling in. You know, one of the themes that seems to link together some of the countries that we've been looking at in our discussions uh, is the way that populism whether it's in Brazil or in the United States, works through the ballot box. That's something Federico emphasized in, in Brazil or with Viktor Orban in Hungary, even Donald Trump in the U.S. You know, these guys came to power through a democratic process. And this is the key paradox, I think, of our time. There are a lot of voters who actually are uncomfortable with democracy. And they see democracy as potentially harmful for their interests. So they're fine with a strongman type of populist leader um, who is openly working to subvert democracy by intimidation or voter suppression, stacking the courts and so on. This is just a fascinating tension that many countries are experiencing. Or, or maybe it's that a large number of people in many of these countries are very good with procedural democracy. They're very comfortable with the idea that there should be a plebiscite and that the leader should have this certification from the voters, even if there's some cheating at the margins, right? And we, we look, we saw this, uh, you know, during the Cold War, where uh, there would be fake elections in 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 the Soviet Union or in the Eastern Bloc, and then there would be a crowing of uh, democratic legitimacy. You know, Ceausescu always seemed to win his election with 103 percent of the vote in you know, in Romania. But uh, but even now, like we actually have legitimate or quasi legitimate uh, functional or or uh, operational democracy, the, the trappings of democracy. Uh, Narendra Modi, uh, clearly an authoritarian religious nationalist, has you know won his elections with first a uh, plurality and then an overwhelming majority of, of the vote in his two consecutive elections in the world's largest democracy, a democracy that has um, just you know high levels of turnout in every election. So what he opposes are the principles of liberal democracy, a notion of tolerance for dissent the notion of um, having multiple parties that are able to operate without fear, um, all of those secondary levels of democracy seem to be in danger, while the actual act of voting is often something that these leaders still support. They do, of course, want to control who gets to vote, and we're seeing that definitely here in the United States. And I think that uh, another common practice within this realm of illiberal democracy is to try to manipulate the truth and particularly to try to delegitimize the experts, to delegitimize the scientists, because they are rival sources of authority. And we see this in, uh, in, in Donald Trump's approach to the pandemic. We certainly see it in Brazil and in other cases. Yeah, but even that's not consistent across the world, right? So you have uh, uh, AMLO in in Mexico, who is, uh, you know, a left-leaning 
populist who uh, you know is is certainly in, in, invested in expanding the political power of uh, ethnic minorities uh, and the poor in Mexico, uh, who also is denying basic scientific facts about the current pandemic. Um, and in contrast, you have Narendra Modi in India, who totally embraces the scientific consensus, both in terms of the pandemic and COVID-19 and climate change. So there are notable exceptions to the efforts to close down all recognition of science. But at the same time, Modi has and Modi's party has its own agenda to undermine history and 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 threaten historians who challenge the party line on whether India is supposed to be a Hindu nation or not. Never forget, historians can be dangerous, too. <laughs> Apparently in India, they're considered uh, dangerous. That is that is one of the more alarming things going on. So in other words, we see different uh, targets of the attack on cosmopolitan expertise in different places. Uh, but I think fundamentally, we do see a similar playbook being run by many of these authoritarian leaders around the world. That's all we have for today on Democracy in Danger. Stay tuned for our next episode with our colleague here at UVA, Matt Hedstrom. He'll help us understand how religion has been deployed and exploited in American politics. When I hear the term Christian nationalism, what I think it means most fundamentally is simply the idea that the United States is or has been or ought to be a Christian nation. And when you have a minute, visit our homepage, medialab.virginia.edu. You'll find links to all of our shows, news about the health of democracy, and links to other stuff that we've been reading. Or pick up your phone and subscribe to Democracy in Danger. You can find this podcast wherever you get the rest of your podcasts. And while you're there, please reach out to us, leave us a review, let us know what you think of the show. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol, with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and the College of Arts and Sciences. Democracy in Danger is a project of the Deliberative Media Lab at UVA. The show is distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective, a podcast consortium of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. Until next time.